Welcome to another episode of On the Streets. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Arata, and back with us for another episode is Dr. Adam Graham, the Neuro Director at Rose Medical Center and Neurologist with Blue Sky Neurology for Health One. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being back. You know, last time we talked, we were talking about some of our deficits and how do we examine them, and it brought up a great topic about posterior stroke. So we wanted to dedicate an episode to that. Basically, there's been, I think, a pretty steep learning curve over the last maybe 10 years about what is posterior stroke and how are we identifying those. And I think for the most part, pre-hospital providers understand that there's a few basics. They, they happen in the posterior part of the brain because they're called posterior strokes. And they have a different kind of presentation than the classic stroke. They don't have that unilateral deficit. They're generally maybe some balance issues or something like that that's harder to capture. Does that sound about right? That sounds absolutely right. And the posterior circulation strokes are different in the symptoms that a person will have, but also just by way of a lot of those patients have what we call positive symptoms, meaning something extra, like the extra vertigo sensation, whereas in the anterior circulation, so those coming from the carotids, tend to be more the loss of function, so negative symptoms. So I've lost use of my arm, I've lost use of my speech, as opposed to the posterior circulation, which is coming from the vertebral arteries and the basilar artery, oftentimes affecting the cerebellum, giving people this positive symptom, not that it's a good one, but extra symptom of dizziness. Well, let's talk about the anatomy a little bit more. You kind of touched on some of that Give us a a quick anatomy review on what we're talking about, where these vessels are coming from. And for some reason, this thing called the circle of Willis is popping into my brain. I've forgotten most of this stuff since paramedic school 15 years ago. So so remind us. Sure. So the anterior circulation. So from the heart, you have two blood vessels coming up front called the carotid arteries. Those become the internal carotid arteries, which go to the largest portion of the brain, uh, specifically the middle cerebral arteries, anterior cerebral arteries, and oftentimes by way of that circle of Willis, the posterior cerebral arteries as well. Then the posterior circulation comes from the vertebral arteries, which are the two arteries in the back of the neck that actually run up through the bony canals in the vertebrae and then join to become the basilar artery, which is what is right against the brain stem and serves our most primitive, life-supportive type functions. Off of those arteries come the different arteries that go to the cerebellum, the back part of the brain, that posterior part of the brain, if you will, that helps with our balance and coordination. And then the posterior cerebral arteries can also come off of that posterior circulation as well. So those posterior uh, cerebral arteries are the ones that it's a little bit of variation depending on an individual's anatomy with that circle of willis. Okay, good. So what, what would you say the breakdown is as far as percentage of strokes anteriorly versus posteriorly? I think we, we identify a lot more of those anterior cerebral artery strokes just because the pattern is so much more classical for a stroke presentation. I think posterior circulation strokes are still happening at, at a fairly high enough frequency, but they're just harder to identify. So dramatic findings versus more subtle findings that uh, you know a fast exam or a BFAST exam may not always capture, but when we're talking about last episode, BFAST, adding balance to your exam, that'll help catch more of these? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the severity is always in question because it's pretty severe when you suddenly can't maintain any of your balance or you have severe dizziness. And I keep saying dizziness despite that being you know almost a bad word in neurology standpoint because it means so many things to so many different people. So from a, a stroke standpoint, it's really that extra sensation of vertigo, that room spinning sensation, or you feel like you're spinning. Unfortunately, those symptoms can also come from the inner ear. And so it's sometimes hard to differentiate between a simple 
benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, that BPPV, versus an actual stroke, which you know we treat very differently. The caveat that oftentimes we'll look for is that it's the vertigo plus something else. So it's vertigo plus my balance is consistently off to one side or the other, or the vertigo plus my eyes are having a hard time tracking, or vertigo plus some weakness or numbness, some trouble speech or swallowing, vertigo plus a coordination difficulty with one arm or the other. So that that's one of the things we use. And then also, is the vertigo worse with movement and goes away when you're laying still? If you're having a stroke, my experience is usually that vertigo will persist whether you're laying completely still or moving. Whereas if you're having an inner ear, that benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, those patients tend to get better if they lay still, whereas any movement will trigger the symptoms. So we can gauge our suspicion based on a lot of this information. Do you think we should still be keeping a really high index for someone who has a history of vertigo, who's having vertigo that, you know, there's nothing dramatically different today, but it was different enough that they decided to call 911, but they can't really verbalize what's different. What do you think? Is that is that a stroke alert or is that just, let's go get you checked out? I think I would err on the side of a stroke alert um, just because uh, you hit on it. There was something different about it today. And sometimes pulling that out of the patient as far as, well, what made you decide to call EMS now as opposed to yesterday or the last time this happened? or wait until the next time it happened or wait some time to see if it's getting better. Because oftentimes when you dig into that a little deeper, you'll find out, well, this one was just a lot worse or this one just came out of the blue all of a sudden for no reason. And with those changes, you know, if there is something different about it before, then our index of suspicion does go up. And I would say it's much better to err on the side of activating the stroke alert because we can always stand it down. And if that person is having stroke and we get behind the eight ball, that can cost them a lot of brain and a lot of function. Yeah, unfortunately, the adage of time is brain still holds true, whether it's the posterior circulation or the anterior. And is it more true? You know, when we think about what these vessels are feeding, it seems like really important stuff. It's not that high functioning, fine motor stuff. It's the I need to stay alive kind of functions. When you have a deficit back there that doesn't get treated, what does that look like for a patient? Well, it, it does depend a little bit on which specific blood vessels are involved. So if it's a stroke of just the back part of the brain, the cerebellum, that part of the brain is actually not that sophisticated. And so patients can make a pretty decent recovery, both with treatment and then patients that aren't able to get treatment, they can still make a decent recovery. So we try to encourage that with patients. Unfortunately, I think the vessel you're alluding to, that basilar artery, that's the one that we pull out all the stops for. Because as you said, that's the one that if not left disabling, it's devastating. So that one we like to be pretty aggressive with. Pretty high morbidity, mortality with those, right? Yeah. Stop being able to breathe on your own. That's a major problem, right? Usually a bad thing. Usually a bad thing. So we're talking about vertigo. We're talking about balance. We're talking about something a little bit different. How does the time frame play into this? Is this exactly the same as stroke uh, in the anterior vessels as far as, you know, the onset is usually rapid and you really want to know that last known normal? Correct. Yeah. The time frame as far as your windows for treatment are the same. That last known normal is the critical piece of information to be able to feel you can safely administer the TPA medications, and the treatments are still very similar in terms of what we can offer when a person's having a stroke in those territories. Okay. And we're talking about how we can understand what we're seeing here. We know that a fast exam isn't probably going to 
alert for this. An NIH scale that you guys do in the hospital probably isn't going to have a very high number for these. So how do we get that confidence? Is there a specific exam that you do in the hospital to rule this in or rule this out? And is there anything that translates pre-hospitally? So the the number one factor I would go back to is, was it a sudden onset change? Uh, because whether it's anterior or posterior circulation, stroke does tend to come about as in a sudden onset of symptoms. And so that's number one. And if that sudden onset of symptoms is things like balance, coordination, slurring of their speech, difficulty with numbness or weakness, then that does raise question of it being more of a posterior circulation event. Now, interestingly, posterior circulation can actually be more common in young adults, or at least young adults are more likely to have a posterior circulation event than anterior because of the mechanism of stroke. A common mechanism for stroke in the posterior circulation is a vertebral artery dissection, which is where there's actually a little tear in the artery. And so with that, a patient may be complaining of neck pain radiating up into their head. And so if they had some sort of whiplash injury from skiing, snowboarding, car accident, heard some unusual stories of things that can do it that, you know, in the past couple days and now has pain radiating up their neck to their head and now suddenly their balance is off, index for concern for stroke for those patients is very high. As far as other examination things that we'll do in the emergency room, we'll often nowadays do something called a HINTS exam, which has to do with watching how the eyes move relative to the head. I wouldn't advise EMS necessarily delve into that just because they're going to repeat it anyway in the emergency room. And I think you're able to gather enough of an index of suspicion for stroke to activate without going through that specifically in the field. And I've had some of my preceptors and my mentors talk about having it be a significant difference if the room is spinning around you or if you're spinning, those types of differentiation. Is there any validity to that? Or is it more like you alluded to before, the room, you can minimize it when you sit still or when you're moving, it's exacerbated. Right. I think for me, it's more the lack of improvement with remaining still because some patients will just describe it as they feel like they're on a boat opposed to like an actual full room spinning sensation. The biggest discrepancy and sometimes the hardest to get out from patients is, well, did you fall because you were dizzy and lightheaded and going to pass out? Or did you fall because you were dizzy and the room was spinning or you felt off balance? Sometimes it seems like a simple question, but for a lot of patients, it's hard to separate the two and, and they'll just go back to, well, I just felt dizzy. But trying to separate out more lightheaded or room spinning, year spinning, being on a boat sensation. Yeah, I think that's always the toughest thing pre-hospitally. You know, I, one of my teachers said instead of a soap exam, it should be a lope exam because all of our patients lie. And it's really hard to tease a lot of information out of them. And, you know, it's a stressful experience. It's all happening very fast. And a lot of people can't remember exactly what came first. It all happens fast, and next thing you know, you're on the ground. But taking that time to really do a good history and do a good interview with your patient to try to figure out what happened first can really make a difference in how that patient's going to be treated. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're obviously on the first assessment, you're getting your vital signs to see, you know, uh, is their blood pressure 80 over 60, which would be more dizziness, lightheaded versus somebody whose blood pressure is 190 over 110, which is more likely to be stroke. And then similarly, oftentimes it's the EMS crews that are the first and sometimes only to see a patient walk as they're moving them from their couch to the gurney or, or whatnot. Because once they get loaded up and then transported, we're just moving them from bed to bed. And so unless we ask specifically for them to get up and walk, the EMS may be the only report that we get of a patient's actual ambulation status. And so that can be very valuable information if you're able to say, hey, this 
this person was dizzy, they said they were leaning to the right, and we walked them from their couch to our gurney, they definitely were falling to the right. That's valuable information for us. So tons of value in road tests and getting those patients up, if at all possible. And again, if they can't do it, that's a pretty good indicator that there's something significant going on with their balance, and that's an alarming thing for any kind of stroke, let alone posterior. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a sign of something that's potentially disabling, you know, provided that's not their baseline. That would be, for me, if I suddenly had trouble with my balance, that's a disabling deficit. And so laying down on the NIH stroke scale, I may still score zero, but still be having a stroke. And, and so in that circumstance, if I'm the patient, I would want treatment. Yeah. And that's something that you're generally able to discuss with the patient and tell them about the risks, the benefits, and that this is probably worth it because do you want to stand up again? Do you want to be able to walk to the kitchen? You're not going to spend the rest of your life in bed, right? Right. And we see a similar scenario with anterior circulation where a person has sudden onset numbness and weakness in their hand. They get to the hospital and maybe now it's just numbness. And we can feel very confidently that it's a stroke, but if it's not disabling, we may not recommend treatment because the potential benefit is so low versus those patients clearly have an abnormal NIH stroke scale, albeit a low score. But then on the flip side, these posterior circulation strokes may have a very severe clinical deficit with an NIH of zero. And for them, because it is a disabling deficit, that's the big word, is if it's a disabling deficit, we're more apt to be aggressive. All right. So when we're looking at these patients who maybe are a little dizzy, have a history of vertigo, are there any red flags as far as comorbidities, risk factors, previous history that should alert pre-hospital providers that there is something more significant going on? What I ask is, are posterior stroke patients, is there any indicator that maybe they're going to have a posterior stroke? Aside from an injury with some neck pain, like you said, in, in kids, how about in older patients and adults? So in older patients and adults, it's the similar risk factors that we see in our other stroke patients with age, being a male, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking history. But posterior circulation, you know, a big risk factor is those injuries to the neck, you know, with those dissections. So it's not to say that all posterior circulation strokes come from that, but at least a moderate percentage of them do. Interesting. Okay. And so how would you say, I mean, this is obviously general and it's different patient to patient every scenario, but is there a general generalization we can form on this that these patients do better or do worse than anterior stroke patients? I think in general, they actually can do better. Again, going back to if the majority of the posterior circulation strokes tend to just be the cerebellum, then that part of the brain is just not sophisticated like some of the other parts of the brain. And so the other non-injured parts of the brain can learn to multitask those similar tasks that the injured part would normally do, it can take over those functions and patients can actually make a, a better recovery. Now, unfortunately, on the flip side, the brainstem injury, because that's just information traveling down and up essentially to the spinal cord and back up to the higher cortical functions of the brain, those ones are much harder to recover from. So treatment early and often is the key to helping these patients, just like in regular stroke. Definitely. Regular definitely. stroke, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, any other kind of nuggets, pearls, gems about posterior stroke you can share with us? No, I think we've hit on the main ones as far as having a higher index of suspicion if it's something sudden, if it's something different from baseline, if it's a sense of vertigo plus some other deficit, definitely is something to raise concern for the possibility of stroke. Feeling confident that we would much rather patients be activated as a stroke alert and then stood down versus brought in and then put in a room and, and then activated you know, sometime later. I think those are the main, main bits. And kids have strokes too. I think that's something that I didn't realize as much before. When I was pre-hospital, I didn't see 
or didn't perceive kids having strokes. But here being in the hospital for the last several years, I've seen a lot of kids with legitimate strokes. And that was a really surprising thing to me. And like you said, more posterior for kiddos than anterior. And who knew? Right. And those are the ones, you know, that because they don't have those risk factors, you really have to have a high index of suspicion with those sudden onset symptoms. And kids also are more difficult by way of, you know, as you start to get into those teenage years, that may be the first episode of vertiginous migraine that they're getting. And so kids definitely make things a bit more complicated, but also they have a higher capacity for recovery, but also ones that we want to make a bigger difference because they do have so much of their life moving forward. And your team and general adult neurology is very comfortable examining kids and helping rule this stuff in and out? I think every provider has their own comfort level with different ages. And it's sort of to what's the low end, you know, in terms of a 10-year-old versus a 3-year-old, you know, is a very different exam. But I, I think in general, all of our providers want to be as helpful in every circumstance that we can. And if we feel that we're not able to be helpful, then, you know, we want to make sure to direct you to someone who can and not have you waste your time with us if we're not going to be able to be helpful. But we have worked closely with the local children's hospitals towards developing protocols to identify which patients uh, would be candidates for treatment and how to go about those processes. And you work closely with them, and so it's kind of like a regular stroke. A kiddo who's got a suspected stroke should probably go to the closest appropriate facility, initial rule out, and then let the physician to physician really figure out what is the continuum of care look like. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's still the process. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for digging into posterior strokes. And we look forward to talking with you again sometime soon. Thank you for having me.